You're listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, the podcast, our audio supplement to the Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs blog about the science, art, and popular culture of Mesozoic life. I'm Nati. I'm Mark. And I'm Niels. Later in this, our fourth episode, Mark interviews paleoartist, teacher, zookeeper, and science communicator Christopher de Piazza. Before that, our vintage dinosaur art subject is Wayne Barlow's glorious work for his An Alphabet of Dinosaurs, published by Scholastic in 1995. Before we open with the Paleosphere news, however, a piece of trivia sent in by listener and friend James Pascoe. The recent successful landing on Mars of the Perseverance rover won't have escaped anyone, I'm sure, but... My co-hosts, did you know that there is an image of a sauropod on one of its cameras? Yes, I heard that, actually. That's yeah. really cool. It's brilliant. I didn't know this at all, but very shortly after um, James uh, sending me this trivia, um, it, it, it spread all over the place, of course. I, I then found that it was being tweeted about. Um, so there we are. Yes, yeah, so Mars is now the only planet we know about that is completely inhabited by both robots and dinosaurs. As far as we know. And on to the proper news then. Mark, would you like to begin? News from the world of news. Well, I was going... Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. So I just wanted to uh, talk about a couple of papers related to the best dinosaurs being theropods, obviously. Ooh. And even better, tyrannosaurs. One of them is about tyrannosaurs. And actually these came out, well, one of them was published in Science on the 26th of February. And it was The Influence of Juvenile Dinosaurs on Community Structure and Diversity by Schroeder et al., or Schroeder, Leons, and Smith. And um, basically discussing why there don't appear to be any medium sized theropod dinosaurs in various ecosystems. It's all down to basically dinosaurs not being mammals. And we actually assume in a modern ecosystem like the savannah, you would have, uh, there's a range of carnivorous mammals from everything from tiny mongooses uh, to wild dogs and I mean, these examples they give and up to lions being obviously the largest species. Uh, whereas in most um, dinosaur ecosystems that they looked at or a dinosaur or paleo environments, um, where there was de decent data available, I think they, um, they looked at over 40 different ecological communities. Okay, good data set. Yes, and there was only one really where they found a continuous, um, almost variation of, you know, a, a continuous sort of spectrum of theropods, and that was the uh, Yixian, which I can't say properly, uh, where, where there weren't any large theropod dinosaurs. But where there are large theropod dinosaurs, there's inevitably a strange gap between the really big ones and these and much, much smaller animals. And notably, it gets the gap gets wider the further into the Cretaceous you go. So in, in the Jurassic, you still have some smaller, medium-sized species. Um, I guess if you think about Ornithelestes um, and the like in um, North America, as compared to Allosaurus being much bigger. Whereas in the Cretaceous, you see that less and less. And there's just this huge gap between the sort of small dromaeosaurs and the really, really huge multi-ton tyrannosaurs. And they, um, again, looking at various communities, looking at data available, and um, they come to the conclusion. And it's by no means, obviously, it's something that's been hypothesized before, but not really that's been supported with um, this kind of analysis and data and been published in this way. Yeah, right. I was going to say, because this is something that experts have been saying for a while. It's just the first time that there's uh, some good science to support it. Right. It's been hypothesized by various people and they're duly um, credited. But this is the first time that really it's... Uh, you know, all this data has been brought together about all these different communities, these different animals, um, into a, 
into well, one paper uh, and properly analyzed and published in science so that you can't read it. Yep. Still plenty of it available. I found a pretty decent um, length of abstracts on a website. So yeah, you can sort of plenty of it available to read. Yeah, we'll put up a link on the blog. Yeah, and it comes down to dinosaurs having this breeding strategy of um, obviously laying eggs uh, and lots of eggs. And um, so you don't get the same um, issue that you do with mammals where they have these small um, litters of, well, you know, in the case of predatory mammals, you have these small litters of cubs. Dinosaurs didn't have that problem. They just um, spammed everything with, spammed the place with eggs. So you end up with loads of juveniles, juveniles everywhere. And those juveniles rapidly grow up, especially in the case of tyrannosaurs. Obviously, um, previous studies have established a really rapid growth curve in tyrannosaurs. So you end up with all these juveniles all over the place and they occupy this kind of middle-sized predator niche. Yeah, right. But there is a there is a weird thing going on with tyrannosaurs, right? Where um, first they, they, they have sort of two growth, growth spurts when first they grow into sort of Jane grades, nanotyrannus grade animals. And then um, 10 years into their life, they will have uh, or 15 years into their life, they will have like this second growth spurt where they grow into these big, bulky, barrel-shaped tyrannosaurs. Right, and that perhaps supports this idea that they're, um, you know, filling different ecological niches over the course of their lifespan. Mm -hmm. Moving on. On the subject of Triassic weirdos, I do like my Triassic weirdos, and uh, they found another Triassic weirdo, and it's called Cranosaura. And um, they actually found it a while ago. They described it originally in 2016, but... uh, Recently, the same people who described it in the first place, Nesbitt, Stocker, et al., um, have found that this guy, this Cranosaura, which is uh, known only from uh, skull material, and uh, it has this thickened dome head quite similar to a pachycephalosaur, uh, but it's in the Triassic, so obviously it's not a pachycephalosaur. Um, It is some kind of archosauriform, um, and we only have skull material, so we have no idea what the body of this critter looks like. Uh, we don't have a complete skull either, so we don't know what its snout looks like. But yeah, it's an interesting case of um, of convergent evolution between Pachycephalosaurus and uh, this guy, Coranosaur. Mm. And um, what this, this new paper says uh, is this guy, which is from India is the sister taxon to another quite similar animal that uh, is also similarly known from only a skull. Uh, that one is called Triopticus, and that one is from Texas, which is uh, quite a long ways away from India. So uh, Nesbitt and Stocker et al. have concluded that uh, these two guys, which are now uh, united under the clade Proto... I have to say this correctly. Protopycnosia. Protopycnosia, many apologies to uh, any old Greeks who might be listening. Uh, Protopycnosia, which is the nucleus that unites these two animals, one from India, one from Texas. So possibly these guys had quite a, a global uh, a global range, a global distribution. Once again, a really, really weird animal from the Triassic. Um, and in my opinion, uh, we don't talk about weird animals from the Triassic enough. It's no. a, a really underrated, uh, really underrated. Yeah, those old Greeks—they just coughed up into their Sifflaki when interest. you said that. It's um, it, it's been interesting to see some of the reconstructions um, that artists have been coming out with this. Um, I, in my complete ignorance of non-dinosaur um, Triassic animals. Um, have no idea what I would base this thing on, but um, 
and I don't even know now uh, um, what what the artists have been basing them on. But for instance, Joshua Knupper has been uh, well has drawn a really lovely one um, of this this creature. Um, I don't know whether you, whether either of you have seen it. Yes, I have. Yeah. No, but does he ever stop? Like he just he just he, no, no. creates paleoart day he never and night. Does. So kind of he never machine. does. No, no. Oh, completely. And uh, it is. I'm absolutely dumbfounded by how he manages it. But there we are. Um, but it's beautiful anyway. And if um, if we're able to to ask Joshua's permission of this, we can probably put this on the the show notes as well. Yeah. Sure. So to the last piece of news for today, um, Rudolf Salinger's iconic mural, The Age of Reptiles, is currently undergoing restoration as part of the full building renovation of the Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History. Now, this this 110-foot or 34-meter mural in the museum's Great Hall was painted between 1942 and 1947, as I'm sure most of you know. And it depicts a span of some 350 million years from the late Devonian to the Cretaceous. At one time, it was the largest mural in the world, and as far as my admittedly uh, not exhaustive research reveals, it remains the largest natural history painting. The dinosaurs in, in the in the painting even formed the basis of a line of toys produced by the Marx toy company and the T-Rex is said to have even inspired the design of Godzilla. And uh, it wasn't until the news, yeah, it wasn't until the news of the restoration that I, to my shame and extremely pleasant surprise, discovered that the mural is in fact an actual fresco, a mural painting technique that was popularized during the medieval and renaissance periods, although the technique itself is far older, going well back into antiquity. Uh, my hopes of comparing the work to Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper, however, was rather scuppered by my learning that it was not, as The Last Supper was, a bonfresco painting, which means that the pigments would have been painted onto wet plaster so that the painting became one with the walls as it dried. Zalinger's mural is in fact a fresco secco, which, as its name implies, is painted onto the dry plaster, so it's an altogether different technique. Um, but... Nothing daunted, I can still cite Giotto's work for the Scriveni Chapel as being uh, a comparable piece of work because it employed the same technique. Now, I'm putting my art historian hat on in this episode, as you see, and I can go on at length. But to conclude, the restoration work is being overseen by... That Spanish lady. It's being overseen by the <laughs> Spanish lady who, did the, who restored that um, image of Jesus. So now it's got a Papo T-Rex on the wall um, and, a, and a JP Velociraptor at one of them. Wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> Unfortunately, well, fortunately, uh, or however you may look at it, it is being overseen by the conservator Mariana Di Giacomo. The, the mural is going to be cleaned, though I haven't been able to find out by which methods. Suffice to say that a protective scaffolding has been erected. A climate-controlled plywood box will enclose this during the cleaning. The air within will be filtered and clear acrylic windows will provide views into the painting from outside. So, The Air Within, by the way, is going to be the title of um, Niels' first prog album. The Air Within. <laughs> the Air Within, that's great. The air within. <laughs> Yeah, I'm definitely Brilliant. going to use that. So we can only imagine the, the the spectacle that this will be when all the cleaning is done. And I can only hope that one day I might be able to get to see it in person. I'm just in love with Wayne Barlow, so I had to talk about his work. Sorry, Wayne Barlow. Yeah. On which note, let's go right in. Where do we start, Mark? Yes. An alphabet of dinosaurs um, written by Peter Dodson. Don't forget, Peter Dodson. 
who, who is a, a respected paleontologist. Indeed. So you mustn't, mustn't forget his contribution to this book, but um, we're talking about the art of Wayne Barlow. And this is from 1995, published in America originally. Um, Niels has an American edition from 95, and I've got a UK edition from 97. I don't think there's a lot of difference between them. I don't think so. The alphabet is in the same order in the US, I think so. Ha-ha. <laughs> Very funny. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, so another rim shot. <laughs> I was gonna say it's it is it's very of its time in many in many ways, obviously. Um, it's but it is it's bang up to date for the time. It's bang up to date for the sort of mid nineteen nineties, um, the state of dinosaur restoration. Um, it's as good as anything you'll find in um, any other books scientifically, and obviously it's very very beautiful to look at. Yeah, I'll say it is stunning. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, a real mix of things are in a drawn or painted rather in a deliberately very naturalistic way with very naturalistic lighting and more stylized pieces with obviously more dramatic lighting but an emphasis more on dramatic contrast and um, con- contrasting colors rather than being strictly realistic which is fine there's nothing wrong <laughs> with that nothing wrong with being a bit stylized um especially when the uh when it looks this good there are obviously there are some predator prey confrontations in here but there's also um there are things like um Dinosaurs sitting around, looking at each other, looking at mammals, um, being contemplative, just feeding, sleeping, um, hiding, you know, just um, so even though it's ostensibly just a kind of A to Z identity parade, I mean, it could have easily just have been that. Um, it manages to be so much more because of yeah, absolutely. each individual um, painting really immersing us in this in these various worlds. This is really one of those books where each and every image is a piece of art in its own right. I completely agree. Yep. Each yeah. scene is it's an immersive piece of paleo art and it, it's a complete, it feels like a complete world. I mean, we have um, all these little details that you might ne- necessarily notice at first glance. I mean, I've just randomly opened up now at um, Xenotarsosaurus, which is extremely speculative uh, <laughs> Bellisaur. <laughs> but um, it's pictured sitting down on a beach. Obviously, it's kind of a sit standing, it's resting its um, pelvis on the ground. And there's a big dead plesiosaur that's next to it, which is clearly about to feed on. And there's actually a tiny bird in the bottom right-hand corner that's about to go in and, um, I don't know, pull the plesiosaur's tongue out or something, uh, I guess. <laughs> but really, really beautiful. This is one of the more naturalistic ones in terms of the um, the colours and lighting and everything. About the Xenotarsosaurus, um, I did some research. Um, next to the Xenotarsosaurus is an illustration of its skull. And we definitely don't have a Xenotarsosaurus skull. It's just no. Okay, let's. It it kind of looks like Carnotaurus. Let's just take a Carnotaurus skull and take the horns off. Yeah, that, that's well. That's definitely what they've done there. It's definitely a Carnotaurus skull with the horns taken off. But if you don't have a skull, then it, yeah, okay, just say it's a generalized Abelisaur skull. Fine. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think they were struggling for X's at the time. Didn't have quite so many uh, Chinese dinosaurs as we do now to undoubtedly <laughs> 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 X. Yes. <laughs> Some of the animals even show up twice, like um, in the background for um, uh, Alicosaurus. Did I say that right? Yeah, Alicosaurus, Alicosaurus. Anyway, there's a Velociraptor in the background, um, which looks very much like the Velociraptor that turns up later, but it's just off in the distance. Yeah, indeed, it does. Vibrant colours on a lot of these, not absurdly so, um, but it just adding a little bit of interest. Um, they're by no means all dull and brown, and um, I mean. Where, and where things are dull and brown, actually, you manage to make them interesting by having them employing uh, cryptic camouflage. So one of my absolute favourites in this book is um, one Anosaurus hiding among these rocks. Um, it is so beautiful. It's, it's a very, very moody, dark kind of scene. But yeah, it's absolutely stunning. Um, again, this is, this is leaning more towards the realistic style, but it's um, 
really stunning detail on the skin. It looks utterly convincing with the um, the sort of folds and wrinkles up in the neck, and and the colours are um, superb. Absolutely, again, real real attention paid to um, giving this camouflage colour scheme that looks completely entirely plausible. And you could just say, well, it's a dull brown dinosaur, but it manages to be both that and also very interesting at the same time. Extremely striking. Yeah. And it also reminds me of another great favorite um, illustration of mine by Ely Kish um, of the, uh, I forget the the exact dinosaur, but it was, um, I believe, a pachycephalosaur as well. And it's uh, an illustration of it hiding under, under some foliage in the rain. Do you recall that one? Yes, I think Eddie Kish might have done a few uh, illustrations like that. There was, um, I think, Hypacrosaurus or some uh, similar hadrosaur as well, employing cryptic camouflage. And um, a lot of the illustrations in here do have uh, quite a Kishian vibe about them. Yeah, they do. Uh, I, I was going to say um, the, the, the Mayasaura especially. That one reminded me of, uh, of Kish very much. Yeah, and some of the more shrink wrap ones. I mean, yeah, okay, I say shrink wrap. Look, I'm being dismissive of them, but it was it was 1995. Well, it's not just the shrink wrapping; it's just the entire structure of the face. I don't know the the look and feel of of the animal, the hadrosaur itself in particular. Uh, it really reminds me of the way uh, Kish would draw a hadrosaur. Yes. The 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 Mayasora, That's another one where it's it's really stylized, right? With really striking colors. A very dramatic scene with the pterosaur coming in. Uh, trying to snatch the baby. There's even a lightning bolt in the background. It's wonderful. It's absolutely beautiful. I mean, and although, oh yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know what the likelihood of such a scene could be. Um, I, I just love the way that the, the, uh, the as dark it just swoops in and in midair, as it were, just turns itself around, <laughs> almost with calculated precision in order to, to to try and snap off one of the younglings. But it's but it's beautiful, whatever you know, whatever its likelihood. It's such a striking composition, and uh, and so dramatic it's in, in its narration. It's beautiful. It does the as you say the contrasting color. Um, that dramatic red sky in the background, with the, with the, complete with lightning bolt coming down the lower right hand corner, mm-hmm. um, and I mean, and yeah, there are a few few illustrations in here that use contrasting color in that way, like the iguanodon as well, uh, with the little yeah, that's dog. definitely my yeah. favorite. I was going to say that um, the the myosaura. I'm wondering in which years these produced, because the myosaura um, has a bit of a sort of skinny 80s 90s uh, noodle neck thing going on whereas the iguanodon doesn't i mean maybe iguanodon was just that bit more robust anyway they didn't feel inclined to restore it that way iguanodons look quite swole they look like um they're like iguanodon <laughs> bros, but that that neck that neck isn't limited to isn't it's not limited to the, the hadrosaurs um i'm just trying to check the baryonyx for instance yeah baryonyx as well is, is really really thin neck like there's not enough room for the muscles in there, but again, that's absolutely beautiful painting. Don't get me wrong, and and, again, and it's just indicative of the time which it was made. Really, it's um, it's just again, of course, things in here have aged scientifically, but that is another really stunningly painted scene. Yeah, sorry, going back to the iguanodon. Apart from them looking really um, well built, they uh, they've been to the gym quite a bit. It's it's that kind of contrast between again between the blue and the red, very very dramatic, very kind of stylized, but um, it really works. So. Yeah, yeah, it's the and, blues and the oranges. I mean, it's no wonder that all movie posters use blues and oranges now. Well, it's it's well, just such an incredible combination. Yeah, they're, they're all inspired by Wayne Barlow's Iguanodon. <laughs> that's, that's what's inspired all these movie posters. So they, they just picked up well, this book as kids and they were like, wow. 
to pick up on that point, though, it's um, one of the most notable things about all the illustrations in this book to me is his pairing of these uh, complementary colors. He employs um, th- this, uh, well, these pairings um, throughout, actually. There are so many of them that you can pick out, you know, uh, the iguanodon being the most obvious one, the blue and orange, the, the myasaura, the red and green. I mean... On the Gallimimus, you have it pretty much on the same animal. <laughs> it's uh, I mean, the Gallimimus is stunning. I love that one. It's one of my favourite. Well, maybe apart from Manosaurus, this is it's a real favourite. You, you've got this. Um, you've got the sort of monitor-looking guy in the lower right-hand corner, just providing a bit of uh, context. And yeah, they're, they're just running along a shoreline. Um, it's again, it's just the, um, the the composition of it is excellent. The um, the, the way that, the way that it really emphasises these animals' um, tall, lanky frames. Uh, and also, of course, and just the colours are, are stunning, and and the work on the the very careful work on the pebbly scales on their skin, which now we know they might not necessarily had pebbly scales all over, but whatever. Lots of convincing little details, saggy bits on on the neck and um, folds and wrinkles, and yeah, mainly I'm just in love with that colours colour scheme on there, the, the black stripe going down the middle, separating this um, yellow and or orange and red, and uh, yeah, that contrasting blue head at the top. Um, and how lithe and nimble they look. Um, again, they're not really doing anything. They're just walking along. <laughs> like they're not even at full pelt, but they look like they could really spring into action at any minute. They just look really, um, they look really convincingly alive and, um, as I said, and active. There's another pairing of complementary colours on the animals themselves in the Tyrannosaurs. Yes, Swain Barlow's Tyrannosaurs. You mean uh, Tyrannosaurus itself? Tyrannosaurus itself, yeah. Tyrannosaurus, yes, Tyrannosaurus with the, the green bodies and the pink heads. Yeah, which essentially is is red, is red and green once more. So yeah, they, they, these are my favourite illustrations in this book. Um, I, I guess I, I tend to be hypercritical when it comes to T Rex reconstructions because obviously it's, it's my fave. So, uh... of <laughs> but I don't yeah. know. To, to, to me. To me, it just doesn't show the same um, careful attention to detail as in some of the other ones. I mean, there is, he has painted them or illustrated them from a really difficult perspective, that especially, and he has pulled it off really well, particularly with the one in the front, uh, which is carrying a leg away. Um, the way that the, again, the, the torso and the um, the, the careful um, orientation of the legs, <laughs> and it sounds, it's why it sounds like really stupid, like, oh yeah, well, okay he got the anatomy right but it's really difficult to get that right from that perspective and often people make it like make them far too the legs far too far apart or get something wrong about the you know the, the yeah, uh, shoulders true. something like that the one in the background i'm not so much i'm not so convinced by but that's mainly because the arms just seem to be like um i don't know they seem to be like jp length they're a bit like kind of i know the arms of t-rex weren't necessarily known completely at that time but i know they were believed to be shorter than that i think just based on um its relatives mainly i see what you mean when you say that this is probably one of the lesser ones. I, I agree with that. Yeah, me too. One funny thing I want to bring up is um, for a different book, also written by Peter Dodson, The Horned Dinosaurs, a book about ceratopsians, Wayne Barlow illustrated a T-Rex that was killed by a triceratops. Ooh, that never happened. And I actually like the dead T-Rex from that one quite a bit better. <laughs> oh, that'll be interesting. <laughs> yeah, but that one's... We don't talk about that one. So, so yeah, yeah, I'll show that there. one now. Uh, I'll show that one on the on the show oh, notes as well. By the way, um, all the images that we talk about, I should mention this, all the images that we talk about, um, you can see them, right? You can all see them on the blog uh, at podcast show notes number four. So I just wanted to get that out there. By the way, the uh, the Chasmosaurus, 
what, what, what we, we should probably talk about Chasmosaurus because everyone thinks the blog's called Love and the Time of Chasmosaurus. It isn't. It's not, but everyone thinks that. Um, there's a Chasmosaurus <laughs> in here, of course, for C. Um, this one was also reproduced in the Horned Dinosaurs book, by the way. It was used for the cover. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, and there's a very um, grey heron-looking bird flying off, which uh, is a yeah. nice touch. But uh, so, some people in the comments to, uh, to my review of the Horned Dinosaurs actually took great offence to the heron being there. Oh, oh really? Oh, <laughs> I kind of think never bothers me that much. I just think, yeah, but it's just like standing in for a kind of basically an, an animal exactly. from the time. That, that's how I uh, see it too. Yeah, it's so nicely painted. You, you could just chop the um, chop the chasmosaur off the right hand side and just call it a nice painting of a heron in like a mangrove thing. Yeah, but again, <laughs> wonderful color scheme, right, with the yellows and the blues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, studying contrasts. Um, what else? Well, uh, Ultrasauros puts in an appearance with an O. Ultrasauros. Yes, the mythical giant that never was. Yep, it fought Godzilla and lost, and now it's been obliterated. The illustration, which is kind of, it does remind me of quite a bit of Gershi, um, although less of the elephantine skin. And yeah, yeah, and obviously it's more meant to be impressed by the thing's huge size. It's all towering off in the distance. Yeah, but one one thing that strikes me is that many um, many artists uh, like Sibic, uh, because we we can't go one day without mentioning Sibic. They, <laughs> they give uh, Brachiosaurus, they give Brachiosaurus traditionally sort of a kind of a friendly face. I al- I always thought Brachiosaurus looked kind of friendly when most people draw him, and yeah. uh, well. Essentially, essentially, uh, Barlow is drawing Giraffe Titan here, but the face is really far off in the distance and really sort of expressionless, and you're meant to stare in awe at something that is sort of fundamentally unknowable and alien and awe-inspiring, and just kind of kind of cold and distant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so there is something, the... there is something uncanny about it. There is there is something uh, almost disturbing you're about right. it in just how big it is and how far. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And just look at the size of the, the muscles and everything and the bone structure of it. It's absolutely colossal. And then, um, so it's naturally, if you saw such a giant thing walking around, you just get out of your car and walk up to it and go, it's 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 a dinosaur. That's, that would be your natural reaction. <laughs> no, maybe not. But, but would it be, though? Because Jurassic Park, that is that is exactly what I'm talking about when I say they make the Brachiosaurus friendly. Yeah, right? and that, that film and they make it... friendly. This is ruddy terrifying. Yeah, you would scarper out I, I of think, there. I think absolutely terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. You wouldn't get in the way of that, would you? No, it could just crush you like an ant. Yeah. Okay. So, Ultrasaurus, like this, didn't really exist. It was a big Brachiosaurus, but a big Brachiosaurus is still really big. So it's still, I mean, this is still basically a human eye view for a big Brachiosaurus. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it would be absolutely terrifying. Um, and I, I like, I do like attempts to sort of um, remove this gentle giant image of sauropods that they were sort of helpless and docile, and they were just like big reptilian sheep or cows there's no way they would have been <laughs> it may very well stomp on you and for all that it's a herbivore it might actually try to eat you just because we know that modern day herbivores actually do that to supplement their diet <laughs> for the protein if you did come up against an ultrasaurus yeah you'd probably be best running away good advice i'll take it to heart <laughs> i would like to mention please um the the oviraptor illustration Oh, yeah, that's a good yeah. one. It's really hard to name a favorite from among all these because they're all exceptionally beautiful. But if I were forced to, 
I might have to call the Oviraptor one my favorite out of the book. It is it is everything. It's compositionally. It, I just love this um, this sort of owl shape that is being made by the Oviraptor and the landscape that it is sitting in. And once again, we have the the purples and the blues making complementary pairs with the oranges and the pinks and the yellows of the skies. It is a stunning illustration, and and it's you know, and you've got this this Oviraptor just kind of ponderously trying to get into this crab. It's just marvelous. It's beautiful. <laughs> I'm just going to wax lyrical forever about it. It's yeah, it really is lovely. I mean, we could talk about all of these. This is the problem. There's, there's so much to talk about in here. Uh, but the Kentrosaurus is a great one with the theropod in the foreground, like, and the perspective, curling its fingers and drooling, and it's so great. Kentrosaurus is great. Yanentia is actually great with the rainbow. Yeah. Um, Leptoceratops, really nice, naturalistic. Of course, there's Nanotyrannus. <laughs> which, uh, which stares into your soul. Uh I might just want to mention, um, and I think both of you probably do know this, um, that I think it's largely thanks uh, to uh, Wayne's background in uh, fantasy and science fiction illustration that has helped him a great deal um, in in composing the illustrations for this book, um, and that is what makes them quite yeah quite distinctly different from a lot of the paleo art from the same period. Yep, um, bravo. Yeah. So that's uh, an alphabet of dinosaurs written by Peter Dodson, uh, illustrated by Wayne Barlow. Absolutely marvelous book. Uh, get a hold of it if you can, even if it is somewhat outdated. It uh, is gorgeous, and uh, I think you will find it very uh, inspirational. Great. Thank you very much, both. Um, and now, uh, on to the interview. Mark, would you like to introduce our guest? Yes, I spoke to Chris DiPiazza, a teacher, uh, illustrator, artist, um, science communicator, and yeah, all things to all people. And he has a mighty beard as well. So um, on with the interview. Today, I'm Mark Vincent. I have two first names, but here we're with somebody who has a proper surname, and it's Chris DiPiazza. Hello. Hello, Chris. And it is, it is a very, it's a confusing surname indeed. Confusing? Mm. Why is that? A lot of people mispronounce it all the time. Um, I, I often get called just Mr. Pizza a lot of times. Um, Mr. Pizza. It's, yeah, it's just the, the, those Italian names are tough for some people for some reason, I suppose. Yes. Although M- M- Mr. Pizza is a great name. Uh, you got to. My, I mean... my, my students call me that. They, they oh, always right. go, they, they like mess it, they butcher it, and they're like, you know what? Screw it. I'm just calling you Mr. Pizza. Deal with it. Okay. So then you produce some of stuff, mostly on the um, Prehistoric Beast of the Week block, which is still going, and uh, mm-hmm. doing, yeah, going from strength to strength. You got, as I said, absolutely, <laughs> I can't believe how many species are on there now. I was going to say, it's also a great, um, just a source of information um, for anyone who wants to learn a few things about some prehistoric animals and not just go to Wikipedia, where it all might be a bit dry and flat. Um, and to, to go there and have a, a beautiful illustration and then it's all written in a nice, lively, accessible way. So that's actually really, um, it's really good. Um, what I was going to say was, uh, Thank you. firstly, um, what's your primary what are the main sort of references that you go to for these illustrations um 
because yeah it must the quality of references must vary quite a bit depending on the animal because obviously for something like uh for a very well-known animal you've got tons and tons of uh references specimens Mm -hmm. um skeletal diagrams and so on and so forth but then for something that's lesser known and you've got a few quite a few lesser known animals on there um it must be hard even in the age of internet to find the um the resources so i'm wondering where you go to yeah uh so i tried to i mean wikipedia is a wonderful starting point and they go, you know, and if you, a lot of people don't know this part, if you scroll down to the bottom of Wikipedia, there's the, the primary sources are there, um, which people love to forget about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so if I try to stick to, yeah, like you said, primary sources and, uh, you know, as a, and I think a lot of other paleoars can agree, uh, I have fallen into the trap in the past of thinking that skeletal mounts on display in museums are safe references, which they're not. Um, Many times, as as you know, they're not. Uh, Whether they just be a bit outdated or some of them are just straight up wrong, um, maybe it's not the museum's fault. Again, it could have been some confusion at the time, but they're not always necessarily a a safe source to reference your art from. Um, a lot of times what I do, and this is why, you know, social media gets a lot of flack, but it also is a wonderful thing. I can reach out to actual experts on said um, taxa and ask them. And nine times out of ten, I can't think of a time that they were not receptive, you know. So I've straight up, you know, sent you know, someone like uh, Dr. Andy Farkey, for instance, a sketch of a ceratopsian or a hadrosaur that I was doing. And he was more than happy um, to give me input. Or, or Heinrich Mallison, who we know um, when it comes to sauropods or uh, stegosaurs. In fact, Heinrich was um, a big help with one of my later paintings of the uh, brachiosaur, the brachiosaurus. Um so yeah, I try to just I just straight up just go to the source, the experts, like the true experts that like publish the work on them and stuff like that. Um, one thing I wanted to mention about your artwork as well, from a more artistic side, well, I'm not really well qualified, is um, the the fact you still seem to be mostly sticking with um, traditional media, so and especially watercolors, yeah. still using a lot of the watercolors as you mm-hmm. were, um, which is actually yeah. seems to be fairly unusual nowadays. Um, so many people are just They've all switched to is, yeah. digital. Um, they're all, you know, smearing things all over Photoshop. Yeah, with very it's most, I mean, who, other than, I mean, I'm sure they're out there. I, I have not touched digital still, other than like the basic, like, you know, cleaning up smudges and lightening and darkening and sharpening up on like basic Microsoft Word. Uh, Nati, I believe, still sticks to traditional. Do they not? Yes. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah. So there's us two, um, and I'm trying to. Th- I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of other people out there, but yes, you're right. It's becoming more rare. A lot of people, at least, at the very least, are maybe doing both. Like, well, they'll they'll make the painting and then they'll edit it further. Um, but yeah, I kind of just honestly, the real reason why I do this is not some like it's not a very interesting reason. It's just that I'm really really bad at technology, um, and I also don't have the it's partially just me being lazy, right? Uh, or not having the time to learn it cuz it's a whole new medium, you know? It's 
I'm not the kind of and I don't you know some people do talk down about digital media. I'm not I don't do that. Digital media is a valid medium. Like you know it's art. You know just like every other kind of you know just like learning how to use watercolors. You have to learn how to use that. Uh, and it's just something I just don't have the time to you know dedicate myself to learning how to do well yet. Um, I don't have the you know I have to go out buy the software uh, buy the tools and learn how to do it. Um, I mean. Uh, people who work digitally would say, well, it's really easy for us to erase a mistake or you know, remove an entire layer of our work oh, yeah. when we go wrong. Whereas you're there with your paints and your brushes. And if you, you know, if you smear oh, something yeah. awful over the, the paper, then, <laughs> I mean, so you're saying, oh, well, it's, I can't be bothered to learn. And but... <laughs> I like watercolors. I mean, I'm comfortable working with it. Um, and yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's it's just me being lazy. I'm. It's not great. It's not a great thing to admit. It's, it's to. not. It's not lazy. But, uh, you know, it's as I said. Because if you were working digitally, you could easily erase things and correct things that you can't. You just can't do um, working with traditional media. I suppose. Yeah. I. I and, and furthermore, watercolor especially is unforgiving. Like at least if I was working with oil paints, you can actually straight up paint over something and it's fine oil paint uh, watercolors uh, and the tea works with watercolors too so they could tell you like you have to do everything in a certain order you can't like if you want to paint something that's lighter colored on top of something that's darker colored too bad like you, you kind of can't unless you start using other media in there which which i do a little bit gouch or uh, gouache they call it um yeah uh or sometimes a little bit of acrylics but yeah, it's it's not forgiving. But at the same time, though, that being said, not I'm not trying to like toot my own horn, but I've been doing it for a really long time. So I'm I'm just it's what I'm best at, and I'm comfortable with it. So despite the fact that yes, from a logical standpoint, it has its disadvantages compared to digital media. It's what I have at my disposal. Uh, you know, I, I, I've taken you know classes on it. I had a really good teacher for it. His name is Joel Papadix. He still teaches um, near where I grew up in New Jersey. Um, and it's just it's just what I'm comfortable working with. And I think to your point earlier, uh, I think because it's becoming less common, it's almost kind of been working to my advantage. It allows me to stand out a little bit more. Um, whereas a lot of the majority of paleo art. Yes, it's done in different styles. Like there's still variation, but it's mostly done with digital now. I mean, your your art is quite stylized as well. It has a, a very sort of um, definitive look to it. Like uh, you couldn't you couldn't look at a piece of your work and mistake it for somebody else's. Whereas, uh, and I guess that the the fact that you've stuck with the traditional media and especially watercolors has helped with that um, because you don't have the the digital sheen over everything, uh, which you can avoid. I mean, obviously. Um, artists like like Mark Wisson, for example, um, is an is a fantastic example of somebody who really avoids having that kind of digital gloss because his stuff looks like it, it could yes. well have been painted, but it wasn't. It was it was all done yes. um, yeah. digitally. But but nevertheless, your one thing that really struck me looking through your the back catalogue and prehistoric beast of the week was how much it didn't look like anybody else's work. Thank you. That, that means a lot, and that's really important to me. Um, and I, I think also to your point about you know, Mark Witten's looking like a painting. It made me think of like one thing that my teacher, my art teacher did tell me back then. It's like, it's, it's, and this is, this might be a considered a hot take amongst the paleo art community, but like, it's okay if a piece of paleo art looks like a painting. It's, it's allowed to look like a piece of artwork and less like a photograph sometimes. That That's allowed. I feel oh, yeah, like definitely. a lot of artists 
are really hell-bent on making things look photorealistic as much as possible, which is awesome in its own right. But it's okay to stray a bit from that. You know, I don't expect anyone to look at one of my... Now, there's artists out there who can do that. Like, you know, um, like Sibic was good with that. Um, yeah. Larry Felder, whose work I'm sure you know. Like, if you look at one of his oil paintings, you think it's, you know, it's a photograph, except for the fact that it's of a dinosaur that's extinct, right? But if you didn't know better it looks like a photograph. Um, I don't really do that. Um, and at first it used to frustrate me. And once I kind of got out of my own head and I realized like, you know, it's okay if it looks like a painting, it could still be a good piece of artwork if it doesn't look like a, a photograph. Um, it kind of took a big weight off. And I think it actually made my art better with that in mind. Um, I mean, you had Natalia on recently, and that's they're a perfect example of that. Um, they're very much stylized, their artwork, but it's still amazing, you know, artwork that could absolutely be considered scientifically accurate paleo art, despite the fact that it's stylized. Yeah, that's that's, that's very rather thought provoking, actually. <laughs> so, um, I mean, it's yeah, I agree. There's there's definitely room for um, probably different styles, and and I mean, obviously there has been a big um, there's a big movement towards um, applying different styles to paleo art and not just purely um, plumping for this, um, opting for this kind of sort of attempt at photorealism all the time. And as you say, it can be a wonderful thing. Um, if you if you look at, again, the hyper-realistic civic stuff, um, I don't know, Gershi back in the day or um, mm -hmm. Raul Martin, um, whose early stuff is basically... It's very civic, like <laughs> uh, I would say, James Gurney could fall into that category. The Dinotopia, yeah, Gurney artist, James Gurney, yeah. um, and like as I said, Larry Felder. Uh, I mean, he, goodness gracious! I mean, Larry's still painting. He hasn't done paleo art in a while, but oh my goodness, his stuff is just. If I, I'd be lucky if I could get to that level. Yeah. Any case, let's talk about your mural because you did a mural. That was a big old mural. I did. Yeah. That was um, that was two years ago, I think, right? Yeah, it wasn't last year, but the year before. I want to say, yeah, 2019, I <laughs> yeah, think. Yeah. yeah, I think that's what that was. Um, yeah, so the mural, that mural um, is probably to date my favorite paleo art project I've ever done for a number of reasons. Um, it's... So to, to give context, uh, it's it's it just got taken down. It was just taken down, I think, a couple weeks ago. Um, but it was on display at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, um, which is one of the oldest natural history museums in the country. Uh, that's the one, um, you know, the famous Bone Wars. That's the one where Marsh uh, worked out of. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I believe it was. Yeah, it was Marsh. Yes. Uh, Cope was at the Peabody, right? Did I get that or did I switch it? I switched it. Dang it. I think Cope was at the Academy and Marsh was at the Peabody. My bad. But anyway, so it has a lot of, you know, historical significance. Um, it's not the biggest museum in the world, but it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful natural history museum. Um, and one of the reasons why it's so awesome to me specifically is because it's the home of the first and second, um, and I got to say non-avian dinosaurs now, right? Uh, non-avian <laughs> dinosaur fossils recognized by science in the United States. 
So, yes, you guys in the UK have us beat. You have the first ones. You got Megalosaurus and Iguanodon uh, and Haleosaurus. But in America, the first ones for us were um, slightly after you guys, uh, Hadrosaurus and Dryptosaurus, the Tyrannosauroid. Uh, most people know Hadrosaurus. Dryptosaurus is slightly less known, which I find strange. So the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia is where Hadrosaurus and Dryptosaurus are both housed, the original fossils that were found. Um, and furthermore, despite the fact that that museum is in Pennsylvania, um, both of those dinosaurs were actually uncovered in New Jersey, which is where I was born and grew up and lived most of my life. I'm I'm a I'm a Jersey boy at heart. When I grew up, it's actually interesting because like when I was a kid, you know, there was always like a little part of our like, I guess, history class in elementary school where we learned about our official New Jersey state fossil, which is Hadrosaurus. Um, And I believe it was a book that I had when I was a kid um, that had that famous Charles Knight um, painting of the, the leaping laylaps, which is actually Dryptosaurus. Which yeah. anyone, you guys all know that painting. And I think my parents, my mom was reading it to me and she happened to like read that it was from New Jersey's and she pointed that out to me. So now I had two dinosaurs. So when I was a little kid, you know, uh, most little kids that are obsessed with dinosaurs. They have, you know, I had the, you know, the, 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 the typical Triceratops, T-Rex, Apatosaurus, you know, whatever. But in my my roster of favorite dinosaurs was also Hadrosaurus and Dryptosaurus. So, and I grew up with those dinosaurs as two of my favorites, which to the rest of the world are kind of more lesser known. Um, so the Academy of Natural Sciences has this one, it's not there anymore. They just took it down, but it was up for years, um, which was a somewhat yearly temporary exhibit where they had a full skeletal mount of hadrosaurus itself which is filled i think the the missing pieces are mostly filled in by myosaura bones and some elements of the the skeleton like the skull they actually just kind of um added their own guesswork to it so it's essentially it's a myosaurus skull with like a like a bit of a crest on the snout to make it more like gryposaurus like or whatever um and uh, just to make it a little bit more unique, so it's not just a ripoff of a myosaurus, which is fine. You know, we don't know what the skull looked like, so who knows? Um, and then behind it, on the wall, is a was a, would be a mural uh, of a life size reconstruction of the animal. And the idea behind the exhibit would to have a different paleo artist each year um, create a mural of Hadrosaurus. So they'd erase it after a year and the next Paleoaris would do their version. And this does a couple of things. Um, A, it, it shows, it showcases how, and you guys have spoken about this before um, on your podcast, how paleo art is an interesting field because there can be multiple reconstructions of the exact same animal that are all considered scientifically accurate, but very different at the same time. Um, and the other thing it does is kind of as the exhibit gets older, as time goes on, it gives paleoartists a chance to apply new discoveries about maybe not hydrosaurs itself, but dinosaurs in general that apply. Um, so for instance, Jason Poole, who used to be, um, in charge of the department of paleontology at that museum, um, he did the first one. He's also a paleoartist and I did mine several years later 
which is very different looking from his on many levels, um, despite the fact that his was totally scientifically accurate, especially for the time that he did it. The Hadrosaurus itself, um, you know, as stated, like I tried to implement all like the latest scientific um, knowledge that we know about Hadrosaurus in general. So like Hadrosaurus Fulci itself, we, we don't know much more about than we did you know, in the late 1800s or early 1900s, I suppose, most of what we know about it, we use by looking at other related animals. Um, so I took, you know, information about those guys and I implemented it to the hadrosaurus. So examples of this could be like um, starting at the head, the the beak, the the classic, you know, hadrosaurs are often referred to as duckbill dinosaurs, even though they didn't actually have duckbills. They had, you know, a bill that was more similar in shape to like a, like an upside down shovel. Uh, because they would have had a layer of keratin over the bone, right? So the the, the duck bill that you see is the, just the, the skull, but the yeah. keratin that would have gone over that would have downturned it more. So that's implemented, and it's much longer, you know. Like, um, so I'm thinking about the uh, the Edmontosaurus that has that preserved, and I think there's a Parasaurolophus as well that has that. So when this animal's mouth is closed, um, that beak would actually kind of go over the whole f- lower jaw. Um, the neck itself is a bit thicker. A lot of times, you know, like it's interesting, like when Jason Poole did his at the time, it was more, you know, we thought that they had more of like a thin, like a swan like neck. And mm-hmm. since then we found mummified hadrosaurs with like a thick, almost like a, I guess I could compare it to like a horse's neck, um, yeah. with lots of wrinkles, folds in it. They had all these folds in the front. A lot of people don't recognize that they, you know, when a hadrosaur raised its head up, there were all these wrinkles and rolls when they when they would have moved their head around. So I made a point to put all those in there around the neck region. Um, the little, um, not sharp, but the little spines that would have gone down the back, the single row from, I think it's a Brachylophosaurus mummy that we have. Um, the thickened tail, the really, I mean, the it's interesting because the wall itself had like a an outline, a basic outline of the animal that was done at the very beginning when this exhibit first came in, I had to go over that. And my, my profile actually engulfs that outline because the tail and the legs and the neck had to be so much thicker, so much meatier than the original one. Um, and then the colors, uh, I kind of thought of like, um, and I like to be consistent with my colors, unless something specific comes out that like counters it. Like um, my watercolor had to source with the same color scheme as the, the mural. Hadrosaurus. Um, I went for like a very drastic counter shading, um, like a dark brown with a white on the bottom and black um, markings. Um, and then the legs have like almost like zebra stripes up the legs. And when I did those, I was thinking of, and this isn't backed up by any specific evidence, it's just kind of guesswork. But like I was thinking of, uh, there must have been biting insects back then, you know, whether that be flies, mosquitoes, whatever. And um, Animals typically have these stripes. Zebras, we know, have these to help actually – it confuses biting flies. So that alternating black and white pattern, when they come in, zero in on an animal, they get disoriented a bit more when they see the black and white alternating pattern. Um, so I was thinking maybe about that on the legs. Um, I gave it a bit like a dewlap, like a like a lizard um, that was like a little bit more reddish in color. And then the environment itself, sadly, like you know, the fossils in New Jersey, we don't really know too much about the environment it's just it's not well researched we've it's new jersey's very developed so it's not like out west where like it's just desert 
um, most there's there's no shortage of fossils, but we're just built over, right? Um, but we know it was on the coast. We know it was probably relatively kind of like a floodplain, like a marsh. There's actually areas of New Jersey today that are not that dissimilar to it, like the Meadowlands. Um, people from New Jersey know exactly what I'm talking about when they're going up those highways. Um, so uh, there would have been like brackish water. So I put in a current resident of New Jersey who was no doubt around back then, the horseshoe crab. You know, horseshoe crabs have been around for hundreds of millions of years before the dinosaurs. So there's no reason to think they would have been around during the Cretaceous. So I have horseshoe crabs in there. And then I also have birds. Um, we don't have any bird fossils from New Jersey, but we do have bird fossils from other parts of the world that are older than Hadrosaurus. So therefore, there would have been birds around with Hadrosaurus as well. They just didn't preserve. So I had some, some creative wiggle room with designing these birds, but I, I tried to stay true to like what we know could have been plausible. So there's, I think some uh, fossils from China of wading birds with like long legs that would have been around in the water. So I did some of those because there's no reason to think that there wouldn't have been wading birds in North America during the Cretaceous um, if they were there in China. Um, and then I put some little, um, little smaller birds that were kind of hanging out all over the dinosaur's back and even on its face that would have been picking maybe parasites off of it. And again, we don't have direct evidence of a, like an ox pecker type bird, but you know, there's no reason to think why they wouldn't have been there. Right. Like, um, you know, paleo art, you, you go off of the facts, right. And you stay true to those. And then it's okay to be a little bit more creative with the spaces that you have to fill in. So who knows? There very well could have been some kind of a little bird that was around back then as well. That was picking ticks off of Hadrosaurus like oxpeckers do off of giraffes and rhinos today. Right. Um, well, a few questions there. First of all, um, forgive me here, but what – so obviously you drew it on the wall in chalk. Um, but then what media did you use to actually yeah. fill it in? Um, it was all chalk. It was all chalk. <laughs> those, those, you know, those, those, yeah, those Prismacolor chalks. You know, those pastel things. Ever see those at the art store or the craft store? They're like these kind of long, skinny, brightly colored chalks. Right. And the They're a little thing. bit more fancy than like sidewalk chalk. Right, and you did the whole thing in chalk. That's um... the whole thing. Um, a lot of it. Uh, I would basically what I found worked very effectively is um, I would use my hand to spread it around. So I'd kind of like scribble like a because the, the animal's 25 feet long. Like I'm going to cover that whole thing with chalk. I'll, my hand will fall off. So I started scribbling with the chalk and then I'd take my hand and smooth it out to make it much nicer and smooth and also spread the color over a much bigger space. And that's essentially what I did. Um, and that's what most of the artists did. The only one who didn't do that when he did it was Ray Troll. When he did it uh, two years before I did, he actually insisted on doing like a more of an abstract technique. And, and Rachel has a very unique style to his to his art as well, where he kind of did little tiny little um, little circles, where if you step back, it looks like a solid color, but when you come close, you could see the line work that he did. But everyone else, uh, all the other artists that have ever done it, have spread their hands around to spread it out. I mean, it must have been. Um quite challenging for somebody who's used to working on quite small scale in watercolors to suddenly transfer to drawing a 
life-size dinosaur on the wall in chalk. I mean, yeah, it was it was intimidating at first, but once I got in the rhythm of it, it was fine. Actually, it kind of went quite smooth. It went much more smoothly than I anticipated. I gotta say. Um, what what happened to it then? Do you know? What, so after they took it down, you said that, um, it's directly into the wall. It's the wall. It's the wall itself. So it's not like it's something that's hung up on the wall. It's literally on the wall. So I'm assuming it got demolished. It, it's not the museum's yeah. fault. It's nobody's fault. It is what it is. Uh, it happens. But it, it's not like it could have been taken down and you know given to another museum or anything. Yeah, they couldn't take down their wall and chip their wall off somewhere else. You know, no, so, um, sadly. No. Um, c- can you talk about those then? What, what have you been commissioned to do lately, other than? Uh... Uh, yeah, one uh, one is a piece I can't really talk about. The the uh, so it's it's intended for a museum, um, but it's originally intended to be to accompany a, a scientific paper. Um, I can't really give too much detail because the paper is not published yet, um, but it's going to go with a paper. And then the author of that paper also works at a museum. So it a lot, So it's going to accompany the fossils that are described in this paper. But it, I've put it online. The, the, the paleo art itself is not a secret. It's of um, – you've probably seen it. It was of a, a Thiscalosaurus. Um, from the late Maastrichtian is like the the centerpiece, uh-huh. uh, but it's like more of an environmental piece. So it's like a, it's a, more of like an environment of Hell Creek, but it's a section of Hell Creek that people don't often think about when they think of Hell Creek. So they you know typically you think of T Rex and Triceratops, um, you know, Edmontosaurus, Pachycephalosaurus, Ankylosaurus, right? Um, this one is more focused on some of the smaller animals that were around back then. Uh, and Thiscalosaurus is like the star, which is wonderful. I think Thiscalosaurus needs more attention. Um, those poor little small ornithischian dinosaurs don't get enough love. But the, so that one, the Thiscalosaurus, it's like the Thiscalosaurus, and then there's um, some turtles. There's some. Uh, there's a guitar fish that was from the Hell Creek. Uh, gars, um, and then all the way in the background, there's a few other dinosaurs. Um, a Cararaptor. Uh, Dracorex slash Pachycephalosaurus, if you want to call it uh, that. Um, And then there is a Tyrannosaurus. But there's only, from this area, there's apparently only a juvenile Tyrannosaurus remains. So it's a a sub-adult, like Jane-sized Tyrannosaurus Rex. Um, as well, so it, it was neat. So all it's, it was a big environmental piece: plants, small animals. Um, I, th- I forget how many species are. T- I think thirteen species are featured in their animals. Um, so that was a lot of fun. And then the other one was of a Tylosaurus, and that one was from this. You would love this place, Mark. Um, that one is for a like one of those outdoor dinosaur parks where you walk through. There's the animatronic dinosaurs. Oh yeah, um, yeah called Field know. Station Dinosaurs. Oh yeah, yeah. There's one. There's a location, and it's called Field Station Dinosaurs. There's a location in New Jersey, and there's a pl- location in Kansas. Um, so they have all these, you know, animatronic dinosaurs, um, and you know, animatronics can only be, you know, they're not always going to be perfect. But they got paleontologists, real paleontologists, to give them feedback about the, you know, the educational aspect of the park. So in that sense, it's wonderful. It's great. Um, so. They have a, a mosasaur. They have a tylosaur there at the Kansas location. So they wanted to have like a big long. I think it's sixteen feet long. Um, sorry, American units, uh, but it's sixteen feet <laughs> um, long behind the animatronic. 
um, and they wanted the color scheme to match the animatronics. So I, I got to do a like a scientifically accurate as possible rendition of a Tylosaurus that's supposed to be featured behind it. Now, the cool thing about, I mean, it, it's kind of neat. It was weird. It was kind of weird and awkward at first, but it actually turned out to be a neat experience is the original plan was actually to fly me out to Kansas and have me paint it directly there, just like I did with the Hadrosaur. But because of COVID, this happened right when COVID was like at its peak. Um, yeah. I couldn't do that safely. So they actually hired they hired a an artist who specializes in replicating paintings. Um, so what I did is I did it in watercolors on a small, you know, a, a small paper, a smaller paper. I scanned it and I sent it to her. And then she, since she was local, she replicated it onto the the um, the exhibit itself. And she oh, did a wonderful job. It looks exactly like what I did, which is interesting because she did it in, I think, you know, acrylics and I did it in watercolor. So uh, I have yet to write a post about that. But I think I did. I put something on social media about that, maybe Facebook or something. So that was pretty cool. No, yeah, it must be wonderful to see. I mean, there is a real difference, um, I believe, in this episode we haven't recorded yet uh, we are going to be talking about the a bit about the age of reptiles mural which is or fresco which is being um restored mm. or it has been restored recently so right. um it kind of ties in with that right. the difference of seeing something that's physically painted on the wall um as opposed to something that's just been printed out it, it, it is a huge difference i mean you can really tell when you're there in person seeing an artwork that's been painted physically onto a surface as opposed to seeing a print or seeing a digital work that's been reproduced it's um right it, it, there is something there that you can't you can't capture in in digital um definitely there's something to be said i i, I may feel maybe i come off as like a i don't know an old person i don't know what even the word would be jaded but <laughs> i mean I, I i think there is something to be said i think digital artwork is wonderful and it's great and it should keep going and doing what it's doing but there is something to be said about you know actual traditionally painted things as well i think i hope it still i hope it maintains a place is what i'm saying like uh, alongside digital I, I hope it doesn't completely go out of out of commission out of, out of extinct i guess is the word i could use uh-huh. yeah no <laughs> i don't think it's going anywhere um i said there is something there that uh, you really can't reproduce but again absolutely fascinating that they had somebody mm. reproduce your work onto a wall <laughs> they did just, yeah that's just wonderful um, it was it was wild yeah thanks chris for coming on today and talking to me and uh tolerating all my stupid questions thank you for having me on and tolerating all of my stupid answers excellent mark uh thank you very much for that interview uh, i really enjoyed it and uh yeah mark nati thank you very much for podcasting with me it's uh, been wonderful as usual thank you and thank you for doing all the hard work so we don't have to. You like Mr. Muscle. <laughs> Thank you for listening. And uh, hopefully you'll tune in again next month when we'll have a new episode. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. Our blog can be found at chasmosaurs.com. You can find us on Twitter at Chasmosaurs. If you want to give us your support, please leave a review of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We also have a Patreon page, which can be found at patreon.com slash L-I-T-C. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bronzewing.bandcamp.com. 
stay safe, wear a mask, and we hope to see you again soon. Thank you.